2: welcome to the new books network
0: hello and welcome to new books and national security a podcast channel on the new books network i'm john saklariatis the host of the channel on today's show we are pleased to have philip lohaus philip is a visiting fellow at the american enterprise institute where he conducts research on unconventional warfare and emerging national security threats philip previously served as an intelligence analyst at the u.s department of defense with deployments to Iraq and Afghanistan, and he is also a reserve officer in the U.S. Navy. Philip is here today to discuss his new book, Power and Complacency, American Survival in an Age of International Competition. Philip, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, John, and please feel free to call me Phil.
0: In this book, you argue that the United States is facing what you call an efficacy deficit. What does that mean, and why haven't most Americans woken up to the problem?
1: Sure. Thanks for the question. So uh, the way that I define the efficacy deficit is by taking a look at uh, how America has acted over the past 20 to 30 years, um, really since it became the sole superpower on the international stage after the fall of the Soviet Union. And despite all the money spent, and despite the fact that it doesn't really have any peer competitor or certainly didn't through most of that period, uh, the United States still wasn't able to achieve its foreign policy objectives in many respects, right? So this comes down to um, getting rid of Islamic extremism or um, other types of, uh, you know, trying to constrain other actors like Russia or China or Iran, which you talk about in the book. Um, and it really is kind of a paradox in a way, right? Like, as if you have all this power, it wouldn't make sense that, uh, or the, it, 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 requires further exploration to figure out why the United States still wouldn't be able to achieve what it wants. And uh, this really kind of is a premise upon which the book is built and in which the, each of the case studies then unfolds and gets into why, um, gets into because perhaps the United States is not looking at competition in the right way. And other countries are looking at it in a way that uh, precludes the need to compete with America in in the areas where it has the the best competitive advantage. Um, And I wouldn't say that Americans haven't woken up to this. I think this is definitely talked about on the margins. Um, Certainly, it's talked about in, in Washington and among practitioners and within the military. But in many respects, if the American people haven't really kind of seen this, um, I think there's been a sense that this is happening, right, the uh, public's reaction to the ongoing conflict in Afghanistan, and before that, the one in Iraq, uh, this question of like, why are we doing this? Or what is this for? Uh, this all kind of gets to that, that deeper question. Uh, but I think To really kind of communicate to Americans why this is happening. First of all, uh, Washington needs to find a solution. Um, You know, hopefully my book can help contribute to some of that. Uh, But they need to find a solution and then articulate it to the American people about why past uh, responses maybe haven't been the best and then what that proposed solution is going to be and why that will work.
0: Your focus here is on the space between war and peace. Can you define what it actually it is that we're talking about when we say that? Do Washington, D.C. buzzwords like hybrid warfare or gray zone warfare capture the scope and nature of the issue appropriately?
1: Yeah, well, I think those terms are more like symptomatic or they're more like trying to uh, describe what is actually an age old problem. Um, When I talk about international competition in the book, I talk about any means that a country has to be able to eventuate outcomes that are to its advantage in the international system. And in reality, countries have been competing in this way uh, throughout their existence Um, from before there were countries when it was just civilizations and city states and things like that. um, This type of competition, there's nothing new about it. What's new about it is the fact I shouldn't even say what's new about it. But the reason why you're having all these buzzwords is that you're trying to describe a phenomenon that in fact is age old um, in a way that makes sense uh, within the current way of thinking about conflict. And that's why you have all this debate about hybrid versus Gerasimov doctrine versus gray zone. Um, There's so many different terms, right? Um, But really what we're getting at is the same thing. We're all getting at the same thing of like, how do we talk about international competition that doesn't necessarily involve military conflict or at least not military combat? Um, And Uh, having this realization, right, that maybe we haven't been talking about it in the right way. Maybe we haven't been thinking about it in the right way. Because in reality, um, conflict outside of combat is the norm rather than the exception in international relations.
0: Right. So in the book, you look at four case studies, the U.S., China, Russia and Iran. And you use those case studies to build a theory of efficacy in foreign policy. I want to spend a moment breaking that down before we get into the cases. What are the two variables you look at, relative power and strategic predisposition, and how does the inter- how does the interaction between them explain foreign policy outcomes?
1: Sure. So let's start with the um balance of power, right? So this is kind of an age-old theory in international relations. I apply it here to looking at competition outside of of military conflict, but it's an age-old theory and it just basically talks about um power versus like the differentials between two two different countries, right? So um in the cases I talk about in the book, we have like the United States, which in many respects is the most powerful country in the international uh, system. And then we have a country like Iran, which is powerful, but certainly not by any objective measure as powerful as the United States. Um, so this, this different, the way that countries are uh, in relation to one another in terms of their power, really sets the tone for how they can compete with each other. Um, A country like the United States has all kinds of tools, all kinds of technology, um, all kinds of means to be able to compete, but it's also much slower. It's also much uh, more used to setting the terms of competition. So those are weaknesses, right? Um, A country like Iran may not have as many resources, but they're also able to look at, uh, they're also able, they can look at the weaknesses of the larger power, they can act in a more nimble fashion. They can act in a way that is uh, potentially going to exploit the weakness of the larger power, right? Um, so that's one. That's one uh, part of the theory. The second part gets into this question of strategic predispositions, and that part really is is a. I would define it as a as an orientation towards competition that's built up as a function of geography, of historical experience, and of the patterns the decision making elites have in um, respective countries, whichever country you're looking at. Um, So it's a way of it's a paradigm of understanding competition, of understanding the world that evolves over time. And the interplay is interesting and important, right? Because um, you may have a country like the United States that is very powerful, but if it doesn't view certain parts of of competition as important, so in other words, it um, minimizes the importance of competing in the information space or competing in the economic realm or competing um, in the diplomatic realm, um, then even if they have all the power in the world, they're probably just going to be focusing mostly on that military realm, right? Um, And that has an effect on the way that competition works with even nominally weaker actors. Whereas on the flip side, if you have a weaker actor, let's use Iran again in in this example, um, if you have a strategic predisposition, again, built up out of geography, history, and patterns of decision making among elites within the country over time, that is more oriented towards looking at things like information, um, looking at things like diplomacy, looking at legal mechanisms, looking at things that are outside of combat as a way of competing, then even if you are weaker, you're going to see weaknesses in your adversary in a very different way. Um, you're going to see um, that, um, again, in this example that I've set up, you're going to see that you know we may not have as much power as the United States, but we certainly know how to use information, or in Iran's case, religious mechanisms, in a way that is going to befuddle even a much more powerful actor. Um, so if you take that framework of the balance of power and the strategic predisposition, you can really kind of shuffle, you can really kind of plug and play with any any different actors to try to understand what a competition between them is going to look like.
0: As listeners may have detected, one of the key insights you make in the book is that America's adversaries. Tend to have a much more fluid approach to war and international competition than does the United States, which looks at things in a little bit more black and white terms. At risk of kind of oversimplifying oversimpl- all the nuance of each of these cases, is there a common denominator that explains why America's adversaries share a certain view of war and international conflict, and the US, for its part, is, you know, Kennan's prehistoric monster? Uh, who was slow to wrath?
1: Sure. Um, Well, if I had to say it was one thing, it would have to do with experience, right? Um, We tend to think of, if you use like an analogy for your life, right? Uh, When you're young, you're very ambitious and you try out lots of different things. You innovate, uh, you discover. And um, oftentimes that's what sets you on your life's trajectory. But as you get older, you become more seasoned. You draw from the lessons you learned when you were younger and you employ things in a different way with wisdom and also knowing to, um, that sometimes having a better sense of, of occasion in some respects, right? Um, and knowing which tools to employ in different times and at different places. And so if I had to give a really rough and kind of facile way of summing it up, that would kind of be it. But um, given the power differences between the United States and the other actors, I would say too, uh, the United States has never gone through a period, a long period of being the weak actor that has to deal with other international um, actors or or with other actors trying to uh, take it over or to subjugate it, et cetera. I mean, some of this is because of geography. The United States is obviously very blessed to have two oceans, be surrounded by oceans and to not really have any serious adversaries on either of its Northern or Southern borders, right? So the U S has never really, even by a function of geography, had to really kind of face the same kinds of threats Um, or the same kinds of uh, historical experiences that some of these other nations have. Um, Russia, China, Iran have all gone through periods of being subjugated, of having to deal with very real threats right on their borders. And these experiences have all taught them different lessons about warfare than the United States has really had to deal with.
0: I would love to dig in there on how experience shapes strategic culture over time, which, as you say in the book, Uh, excuse me, strategic predisposition is accretive. Um, So I'd love to go in depth into, excuse me, the United States. Can you pull out some of the kind of key watersheds that shape the evolution of the United States' strategic predisposition, predisposition and kind of where we ended up today?
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, well, I think we have to go back to the very beginning, right, and talk about the formative experience that the U.S. had And even back to, and I do this in the book and I, I won't, um, you know, I won't, I won't bore all of your listeners with all the details, but if you go back to the very beginning when the United States, before the United States even existed, and it was the US and it was colonists versus Native Americans, there was this mindset of having to, you know, um, not, not even have, well, there was a mindset one of, of expansion uh, which I'll get into in a moment, but then there was also this mindset of having to obliterate threats, right? Get rid of threats. Like there was no managing. Um, it, there was in the beginning, but then it got, got to a point where the United States no longer viewed the threat posed by Native Americans as one that was just could just be managed. It was one that had to be pushed out. It was one that had to be extirpated is what I found in doing my research, right? from From the time. And of course, this is not the way we like to think about it now. But if you look at like the way the colonists were actually uh, thinking about it, they were viewed, Native Americans were viewed as an existential threat to the colonists' existence, right? So this, con- this, this, this duality of needing to completely eliminate threats rather than manage them, and of a, uh, a predisposition, I don't even want to say the word predisposition here because I don't want to like confuse the listeners, but of a orientation towards expansion, um, an expansionist imperative, if you will, um, these two things, these two threads, really, you can trace all throughout American history up to this day in terms of how the United States approaches strategy. Um, I mean, it, it's evident in the founding, right? And with the, if you look at like the debates that the founders were having, you look at the Federalist Papers, you look at some of the other uh, material from the time, um, you know, you look at the, the debates about what the role of the federal government was versus the role of the states, um, the role of uh, America in the world, right? Looking at what, uh, like how Jefferson viewed things versus how um, how Hamilton and the Federalists viewed things. Um, all of this evidence is there, the same kinds of, the same kind of tension. Um, I will say too that like, uh, you know, in the book I talk a bit about attrition versus maneuver, that America's adversaries tend to be using a more maneuver-based strategy, Uh, America tends to want to just, as I mentioned, going all the way back into history, want to eliminate threats. Um, This is important to think about because if you just want to eliminate threats rather than manage them, that gets us to a stage where we're at now, right? Like instead of managing a threat, which would be something you could do through diplomacy, through economics, um, through information operations, through subversive actions, uh, the United States, especially it's military, which increasingly has taken a larger and larger portion of managing America's foreign affairs, which is almost a separate podcast entirely. But um, because it has gotten to such a point where the military is is the primary manager of Americans foreign affairs these days, dare I say that it seems to be true um, because of that if you have this mindset of needing to obliterate threats, needing to obliterate crises when they arise, um, you're not gonna have the same level of support for the types of activities that over the longer term may be very effective, but that are gonna be much harder to measure, right? And um, there are institutional reasons and things like that that have kind of built up to support this, right? You know, I mean, our uh, our country's a democracy and politicians want quick outcomes. Um, We tend to have a scientific view of warfare. And even within the way that we think of management in this country, we want metrics to metrics really drive everything. And a lot of these things that we're talking about that are more subversive and more subtle are very difficult to measure and may not may not uh, provide any kind of real out measurable outcome ever or certainly not for a long period of time. And that's just not something. And if you look at the funding for the tools the United States has to compete in this realm, it's something that is continually underfunded, continually underappreciated. Um, and again, we can kind of get more into that, if you like, uh, more into the, um, the more nuances of like, how that all looks kind of at a more programmatic level. But um, yeah, I would say that th- those two threads really kind of, um, you see them throughout American history.
0: Can you talk a little bit about the role that America's insistence insistence upon casualty avoidance plays in its strategic culture, and perhaps how that might differ from some of the other cases in you consider in the book.
1: Absolutely. So, um, you know, I wouldn't say it's always been um, a. Again, not to be nitpicky, but with culture versus predisposition, I, I I wouldn't say it's always been a feature of Americans America's strategic predisposition. I would say that it's been. Um, it's something that has evolved over time, uh, certainly since Vietnam. And if you go back and look at Vietnam, um, what was happening is that you were having lots of people reacting to people that they knew who had been drafted, who were dying. And they were saying, what are they dying for, right? And so the lessons that the military kind of took from that and that American public leaders really took from that was like, well, you know, America's still going to be facing a lot of challenges in the international sphere. America's interests are still global. How do we manage this while still maintaining public support or while not completely um, losing public support at the very least? Right. Uh, So that's kind of where you started to have the generation of military leaders who had experienced Vietnam and who then got into positions of power. You started to have this mindset kind of permeate things more. And same thing with politicians that had grown up during that era, um, the, young politicians or even before they were politicians, but had witnessed that when they got into the positions of power, this was a more of an important thing. Um, and, you know, I, I point this out in the book, not so much, I don't really present it as a, you know, a central feature of how America sees itself, but rather as a feature of how other countries see America. Um, because you really see it, you see it quite um, starkly in the way that China observed America, right? So like going back to the Gulf War, when it became apparent, when the revolution and military affairs had occurred, and when it became apparent <clears throat> that the United States was developing um, a way of competing or a way of co- combat that was highly reliant on technology, <clears throat> right? So net centric warfare, things like that, increased precision, all of that, Well, the Chinese looked at that and they said, of course, yes, that's impressive. But the the thing that surprised them the most was that all of these different tools of technology were being used to minimize casualties. So instead of using a technology to overwhelm your adversary, right, rather, America was using its, um, its, its highest forms of technology in many respects to become more precise, to be able to use a, a, a missile, for example, a precision guided missile in a way that like would actually avoid any kind of collateral damage. And this was fascinating to the Chinese because it's very different than how other countries might use their technological superiority, right? And so I think it's it, it's more like a quirk of the system um, in the way that America is approaching competition now, but one that I think other countries have noticed and that other countries maybe do not share, um, particularly China. Uh, like, for example, if you look at st- uh, the Chinese strategic predisposition and the way that they <clears throat> that they have uh, competed in actual combat that they've gone into, even in the 21st century, they really rely on a on mass, right, on massive troops, mass of um, massive effort. Um, I would say it's, it's this analogy even applies outside of combat. Right. They rely on overwhelming information. They rely on um, ubiquity when it comes to the cyber realm. Um, You know, there's lots of theories about how this also applies to the way that they collect information. Um, It's really about mass and mass effort and putting your effort in everywhere. So I guess a way to draw it out would be when China saw the United States in the Gulf War and with uh, the advent of net centric warfare and precision guided munitions and everything like that, they looked at it and they're like, well, if we have this technology we would be applying it in a much that more vast way. We would be applying it in a way that would not try to minimize the object of competition, not try to minimize the object of um, contention, but rather that would expand it out, that would make it so that the enemy had very few options on any front. And um, so it's just like a a really interesting contrast, right? Um, And we say casualty avoidance, that was kind of the impetus, but in reality, what that has resulted in is focusing more on um, that's permeated the way that the United States approaches technology, the way that it conceives of, of competition, the way it could, um, um, per- perceives of standoff and of offsets and all of this. Um, and I'm not, you know, I don't take a normative stance on this in the book, whether it's good or bad. I mean, I think that uh, we can all agree on the value of human life. It's 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 really something that I think that value is something that maybe is, is not conceived of in the same way by other actors. But when it comes just down to the competitive side of things and down to the interplay of powers and 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 combat, it does have very real consequences on how things play out.
0: Well, I think you you also do talk in the book a bit about the importance of there being kind of a threat to organize um, the minds of American strategists and policymakers and at least since the end of the Cold War, that threat for the most part has been lacking. I mean, the case can be made that that is changing literally in the last few years with China. But I think part of the issue underlying the casualty avoidance Kind of equation here is that in most of the kind of recent history of the United States, for example, in the Middle East, there seems to be a disequilibrium in terms of the United States stakes in the conflict and therefore their willingness to spend lives versus that of kind of the local actors like Iran or, uh, you know, Shia militias in Iraq. Is that fair to say?
1: Um, yeah, I mean, I think it's fair to say, but it's somewhat. I mean, I think if you look at it objectively, but it certainly is different than how these things are framed in Washington, right? Um, these things in frame, all of these different conflicts that the United States has been involved with are framed in as close to of an existential way as possible, because uh, for reasons I get into in the book, that kind of rhetoric is what is required. Um, well, that kind of rhetoric has to be employed effectively in order to mobilize the public support required to really achieve an objective in the international realm, at least in the American context. Um, So, I mean, yes, I think you're right. Um, But I would argue that even if there were to be some kind of cataclysmic um, conflict between China and the United States or the United States and Russia, that these types of the casualty avoidance question would really kind of come into play a lot, right? And and I, I think it's important too here to kind of like really draw out the thread a little bit about civil military relations. I mean, look like unlike any of the other actors that I talk about in the book, in the United States, the military and civilian worlds are very separate. I mean, there've been all kinds of studies about how very few civilians even know anybody in the military, right? And that it's become kind of almost like the separate case or the separate class of people that um, are involved in defense. And so that disconnect between the realities of what is required to maintain America's position in the world um, and the public perception of how America is managing itself um, in, a, in the international sphere um, has a lot of implications it, on this question, right? Um, because it becomes casualty avoidance, sure, uh, but the military side, that's not even necessarily going to be the main driver From a political standpoint, it becomes one of the main drivers, because the last thing, as American leaders learned in Vietnam, that any politician wants to have happen on their watch is to have Americans coming back in body bags, right? It's political suicide. So those types of, um, this also ties back a little bit to more of that emphasis, uh, or I should say, the um, kind of like institutional or built-in incentives to look at things through a short-term lens, right? Um, Whereas if you're looking at it through a longer-term lens, those types of images, as jarring as they are, um, wouldn't necessarily be quite the game changer. Uh, They wouldn't necessarily be the game ender that they are here in the United States. Mm -hmm.
2: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com/system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com/system.:
0: Reading the book, one gets the sense that America's adversaries understand it better than America understands them. Is that fair to say, and if so, why is that the case?
1: Yeah, um, I, I don't know if I would necessarily say that. Look, I mean, I, I don't, I, I don't sit in like the intelligence services in Moscow or Beijing, you know, I don't, I didn't get into any of that in the, that level of detail in the book. But I do think that because the United States has been the primary actor on the world stage for the past 20 or so years. Um, it has given these other countries an opportunity to observe how America behaves in a variety of contexts, Um, contexts that we simply have not been able to observe in some of these other countries, right? Um, You know, so China, for example, we can observe their military, we can observe how they're operating in the information space. It's a lot harder to, I mean, we can read doctrinal documents, we can gets a bit of a, certainly a theoretical sense of how they would behave, let's say, in a conflict with Taiwan, but we've not actually seen them employ, seen how well they can employ all of the tools available to them um, in a time of conflict, right? So I think it's, it's not necessarily so much that we don't have smart people in the U.S. looking at these other countries, but rather that the United States, because it has been so involved internationally in so many different ways, there's just been many more data points to be able to observe that and the fact that we are an open society and very and a lot of our materials are easily accessible. And even those that aren't, frankly, can oftentimes be hacked um, we have a tendency for that reason to have shown our cards a bit more than some of these other countries have. Mm-hmm.
0: Now, the US is kind of the focus of the book. And in comparison with each other case that you consider, it is the stronger power, which gives kind of some structure to the theory you develop, given that one of the variables you look at is relative power. Did you ever consider the implications of the model for those countries that might simultaneously compete with greater and lesser powers?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think what I tried to do in building out the theory was to have it be something that is applicable across um, different types of competitive dynamics and in, in different types of spaces, right? So um, even though, as you're correct, in, in, in the book, the United States is, is kind of described. And I think um, empirically it's accurate uh, as the most important player um, of the four, or I say by most important, I mean, the strongest player of the four that I look at, Um, you know, this model and this way of like looking at power dynamics and then looking at strategic, strategic predispositions could be applied to any combination of these different actors or other actors as well. Because um, regardless of who A and B are, A and B being two countries or even two groups in the international space, there's always going to be a power differential, right, between the two. One is going to have more power than the other. And um, regardless of who, who these two actors are, they're always going to come to the table for the competition or the negotiation with, um, with a way of viewing the world, with a paradigm, Right. So I think I I tried to build up the model in a way that could be used in a number of different contexts. I use it here to kind of really focus in on the United States and to draw recommendations for what the US could do to be better. But I think it has utility um, across a number of other um, conflict realms as well.
0: At the end of the book, you do offer a series of pretty concrete recommendations for the United States. Can you talk about the path forward?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, so, sure. I mean, I'd say I could probably bucket the, the recommendations into three different categories. Um, the first would be for the U.S. to develop and stick to long, uh, comprehensive long-term strategies Uh, We touched a bit about on on this in the interview, but one of the uh, weaknesses that I see in the way that America approaches international competition is that it for many reasons, it's not very good at developing a long-term strategy and then sticking to it. And by long-term, I I mean beyond a a couple of election cycles, right? Um, It has been successful in the past at doing that. I talk at length in the book about the example of the Cold War and of NSC 68, and then also of the reinvigoration of some of the tools of competition that occurred during the Reagan administration. But it has to be... um, the American public, most importantly, has to view it as an existential threat to America's existence. You saw a similar kind of rallying around the flag, so to speak, after 9-11. After 9-11, though, I would say we didn't necessarily employ a long-term strategy, even though the opportunity was there, the political will was there for us to be able to have a long-term strategy. We rather focused on uh, individual conflicts and on shorter-term gains, right? So- this, um, I'd say this is a big contrast to how other countries perceive conflict. And and the ones that I detail here in the book are examples of that, but there are others as well. Uh, But the U.S. really kind of is more focused on these short-term gains. Um, And so then when you have things like that, you have uh, the examples that I gave earlier about kind of the the immediate way we approached the global war on terror. But another example of that um, are the negotiations for the JCPOA where You know, there was a sunset period where after that, Iran would have been able to pursue nuclear weapons. And, you know, so from an Iranian perspective, this is a a civilization that's been around for thousands of years. They're like, fine, we'll just wait it out. Right. But from an American perspective, um, there were real political gains, short term political gains to be made from creating a deal, even regardless of that temporal kind of difference in perceiving. difference in perceiving um, costs and benefits. Um, The way that I talk about the long-term strategies is to kind of not just think about it as like a long-term and this is important military strategy, but also to think about how to fold in um, other aspects of national power in a way that was kind of similar to NSC 68 and into some of the work that the Reagan administration did um, targeted at the Soviet Union Um, to facilitate this. uh, I talk about the importance of the national security council, because right now, You have offices that think about this, right? You have the Office of Net Assessment in the Department of Defense. You have offices that think about long-range planning in the State Department, but you don't really have um, a forcing mechanism to coordinate all these things uh, in a way that uh, is incentivized to plan for the long term. So you have people at the NSC to coordinate things, but they're mostly rotational, right? They come in, they come out, Um, many times they're appointed, they're only there for one administration. You don't really have something within the NSC, to be able to provide longevity, to to interact with other aspects of American society, whether it be academia, whether it be industry, um, whether it be um, other, whether it be other aspects of American society as well, um, and to coordinate all of this, right? You have lots of little areas that are looking at things, but importantly, the one me- the one body that is meant to, to coordinate all of these things. Um, doesn't actually have the ability to provide for that longevity. So the book talks a bit about specifics uh, recommendations for the NFC. Um, the second bucket is um, an evolution of the understanding of warfare. And, um, you know, this is really kind of jumped out of uh, looking at the way that these different actors are competing and then looking at the U.S. and seeing, well, do we have those tools? Oftentimes we do have those tools, but we're not necessarily thinking about them in the right way. So um, one thing that I talk about is um, developing an increased comfort with exercising of what is called lawfare, right? So using legal mechanisms, be they international legal mechanisms or working within the systems of other countries to try and constrain the way that these different tools of competition can operate. So it's it's particularly effective for economic tools and also for informational tools. Um, And, you know, we, of course, have some of the, probably have more lawyers in this country than in in any other country, but we haven't really developed a way to operationalize that talent and that knowledge, um, particularly with respect to other countries in a way that can box other countries in, or at least box in their efforts to compete outside of military operations. Um, I talk as well about Congress um, and about the funding structure for the way that all these different tools of competition are funded. So uh, there's a long debate about you know, Title 10 versus Title 50. So Title 10 is, is, is funding the overt parts of the military, Title 50 funding more like covert operations in the intelligence world. Um, you know, That's part of it. But we also have to think about um, another funding mechanism that funds state, for example. So all these different uh, the funding authorities are very separate, and they're treated separately in Congress, oftentimes looked at um, by different specialists in the committees and everything. And this creates silos, it creates duplicity. Um, and, it, and because of, of course, this is a democratic system, it all is done in public, it creates clear seams for adversaries to exploit. So in the book, I call for Congress to try to increase the flexibility of the funding structure um, in a way that allows for um, uh, for cross pollination, and that allows for, not just of funds, but also of ideas, and that also makes some of our intentions less clear to our adversaries. Um, and then I, I also, you know, talk. This is, uh, relates a little bit to the, the first to the first point that I made, talking about. Um, folding in different uh, different people from other industries, fold, uh, enveloping and leveraging industry. There's been some efforts to do that. Certainly under the Trump administration there was, and historically America was good at it, but leveraging um, tech industry, leveraging biotechnology, leveraging industries that are important to American competition. Um, and I think most importantly of all, in terms of evolving the understanding of warfare is developing a way uh, f- to articulate Diffuse threats to the American people. We, I mean, we started out this conversation about like, why, or do the American people, why don't they see, or how do they understand America's decreasing efficaciousness in world affairs? And the fact that that is not something that the American people really understand is something that should be changed. And that change has to come from the top. And that leads me to the third bin um, adoption, alignment, and implementation. Um, Really I, I focus in this area. I have some programmatic suggestions, but um, you know, where I talk about the fact that like, you know, given the threats that we outline, the fact that so Special Operations Command is facing budget cuts, that the um, U.S. Agency for Global Media is facing budget cuts. It, it really kind of is just doesn't really, it doesn't make any sense in a lot of ways, unless you consider SOCOM just as being those people that go and knock down doors and like are elite warriors. But for reasons I get into in the book, that is overlooking a large part of their comparative advantage, what they bring to the table for competition. Um, I really focus though, aside from that programmatic stuff on presidential leadership and how important that is and how rebuilding political will is really important and how without a president being able to articulate the nature of the threat, um, and there are philosophical reasons behind this too, Um, Without them being able to articulate that uh, in our system, I really don't see a way for us to be able to compete effectively because you need to have the president to convince the American people to build up the political will to then get the uh, mechanics and the American bureaucracy in Congress and elsewhere to work together in concert in what really is a not even just whole of government, but whole of nation competition in the international space.
0: Before I let you go, Phil, I'd love to ask what you're working on next and or what your plan is with the book in terms of kind of getting this message out to uh, policymakers down in D.C.
1: Yeah, sure. So, um, well, I'm going to be having an event um, either in later in July or in September. So definitely keep an eye out for that. And that's going to be live streamed. It'll be an event through uh, the American Enterprise Institute. uh, So keep an eye out for that. I, uh, in terms of like more targeted types of things, also in September, I'm going to be going and meeting with people on the Hill, talking to some people that I know of the administration. Um, Look, I do think that there are, um, there's an increasing awareness that this is a problem. And it's not just because of me, there've been a lot of people who have done a lot, who have done work in this space, some of whom I've had the pleasure of working with, Um, but there is an increasing understanding uh, among uh, particularly uh, people in the executive branch that we need to be thinking about competition differently, right? It's not enough just to publish a strategy that defines it. We got to think about how we implement this differently. And so I'm very much looking forward to um, to those projects. Um, and I think you know my my future projects will kind of probably build off of this question, this question of like at a programmatic level, how do we actually compete more effectively, and um, how do we actually define success in a realm that uh, by definition is hard to define.
0: Great. Thanks so much for coming on the pod, Phil.
1: Thanks so much, John. Thanks for having me.